So if uh, you haven't met yet, which some of you wouldn't have, this is Pastor Craig Ireland from New York. Okay, that's normal though. Um, I, that, I, did, I, I, I said you were coming about three, two Q&As ago, and I said you got to improve. I got one woo. I said you got to improve on that for when you come. I think that was two, which is a hundredfold increase. Um, uh, and you're visiting from, at the moment you're visiting, you do plan to come back permanently. Yes. Uh, you're pastoring, the, you, you planted this church. Yep. 2008. Yep. Went over to America, revitalized at another church now uh, in New York State and coming back like beginning of next year at Early some next point. next year, back to South cool. East Queensland. And it is up, up the, it's still to be yet known what the Lord would have you do when you come back, but yeah. some form of ministry. Who knows? Yeah. Prison chaplaincy. Mm. From the inside. <laughs> State sponsored. The, res, the return is in fact a, an extradition. You're being brought back. Um, so we've got a bunch of questions here. Let's start here. Uh, Craig, what books are you writing? Uh, like canonical or non-canonical? <laughs> um, so there, there are two books that I've written that will be published before the end of this year. One of, them, one of them I haven't technically written. I've revised uh, a classic Charles Spurgeon book called All of Grace. And um, I've done a, a modern revision of it, and a publisher's picked it up. It'll be released late October. Um, it's got a new title. It's called By Grace Alone. Very simple gospel presentation. If you've never read the original All of Grace, I actually, I might get in trouble saying this from my publisher, go and get that. Don't wait for my revision. The original is better. Um, but the revision is important because Spurgeon wrote the book to be accessible to everyone in the English-speaking world. Uh, but Spurgeon wrote in the middle of the 19th century and language has evolved and idioms change and metaphors change. So I've done a full revision. Um, it's, gonna, it's called By Grace Alone. It's going to be released in October. The other book I have written from scratch, back when I was pastoring this church back in the, around 2016, we were doing a lot of pastoral training stuff in Asia and Southeast Asia. And we ran into a bit of a, bit of a blockage where we wanted to resource church planters, particularly in India, among the Telugu people, part of the heritage of Hope Reformed Baptist is in the years 2016 and 2017, Hope Reformed Baptist Church equipped, trained, and resourced 10,000 church planters among the Telugu people uh, in South and East India. So part of the challenge there was to come up with a resource because we couldn't just steal someone else's resources. There's a lot of great books on pastoral ministry, uh, the faithfulness of ministry, but they're all under copyright. Right? So you can't just steal it, translate it in your language and start publishing it. Um, so we wrote a resource from scratch in 2017, and I just left it because I had no intention of ever releasing it in English. It was just given to translators in Asia. They would translate it. They would produce it. We published 30,000 copies, uh, and it, you know, people were very attracted to it. They wanted the resource, and in the last year or so, a publisher contacted me, asked me to bring it out in English, and so that's been a project in the works. I think that gets released in November. Very exciting. You wrote the other one on... Um... Although with the other, did you mention the two? No, I just, I'm not publishing the other one. Don't, worry, don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Uh, do we know historically what happened to the seven churches of Revelation? Did they heed the letters and the warnings of Jesus? <clears throat> do you want to have a crack and I'll throw in? Yeah, this is not as hard as you might think. We know where those churches are right now, and very few, if any of them, are still standing. So there came a point in the history where they weren't exactly faithful and the lampstands were removed 
Much of that can be traced in secular history to the, the advent of Islam in the 7th, 8th, 9th century through Turkey. Asia Minor is what we call today Turkey. Now, tracing some of the history in the first couple of centuries to look at how these churches actually received that word and hopefully augmented their behavior and dealt with persecution and eradicated the heresy in their midst. Depending on the church, we can ascertain some of that, but it's often second, it's third hand. It's not always uh, very accurate or primary source history, um, but we can get some general idea. Tom may be able to offer something more specific. I would, I would just say that the, so we, we, we don't do ourselves a, uh, a service when... I could add a lid on it. They know what they're doing, giving me a sippy cup. Um, the, uh, we do ourselves a disservice when you're reading Revelation if you think these, uh, uh, these sins and these alone were the sins of this church, and they were therefore a Laodicean church as we read them in Revelation forever, like as if uh, uh, they could have repented of that, but then it, in the next generation or in the next five years started committing the sins of Ephesus and for that reason been closed down. So it's not necessarily that we can that you can um, say throughout any, throughout, whenever they closed in any generation, that's because they didn't heed these particular warnings to them. It wouldn't quite be that black and white, but we can say, and it applies to every church throughout all time, churches only ever close or we can say that Jesus removes their lampstand if they become a non-true church, right? He hands them over. They're not a true church anymore, even if they keep on meeting and calling themselves a church. He, whenever that happens to a church, that is because they have not heeded the warnings of Revelation and all of the New Testament. Once they have rejected the clear teachings of Jesus, he gives time to repent, responds, uh, uh, reaches out to them, and then eventually brings that judgment. So, And it happens all the time. Absolutely. Actually, right now in the U.S., the current statistic is that 7,500 churches annually shut down in the U.S. Of course, Australia doesn't have that significant a number of quantity because Australia doesn't have that many churches to begin with. But getting a sense of the landscape of a, a country like America that had a fairly Christian heritage mm. to lean upon, uh, now churches close to 10,000 a year are shutting their doors permanently. Mm. And um, Jesus is not shy in rebuking, disciplining. We saw that in tonight's text. I reprove those that I love. And if churches don't repent, stabilize themselves in the word and follow the clear commandments of Christ, yeah, he'll yank that lampstand. It'll be, it'll be game over. Um, why'd you give up your Australian accent? Yankee doodle. It's anonymous. It says Tom. Some coward out here <laughs> has asked it. Three other people have liked it. I felt compelled by the vote of the democratic people to yeah. ask. You haven't entirely... Lost your accent. I don't know what to say. I sound... You're as confused as, we, as confused as we are about the... Yeah, I sound as perfectly <laughs> as Australian as I always have my entire life. You curved your R's growing up in Bankstown of Sydney. <laughs> and Western Logan. Sydney, yeah. yeah. <coughs> what is the charismatic prayer language? Can what, you give us What a, does that mean? Can you give us a demonstration? <clears throat> uh, the... The charismatic prayer language um, is to be distinguished from the, uh, the Pentecostal or charismatic gift of speaking in other known languages in the New Testament, which was a part of the uh, Spirit's work, especially in the frontier min uh, ministry of the, the early church. Um, uh, that was one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit had given in particular ways. And then the other one that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14 is um, uh, 12 through 14 is uh, praying in a prayer and a praise and a doxology to God in a language not understood by the prayer um, that 
exceeds or supersedes or transcends the usual linguo-intellect connection, where it is words being spoken by the Spirit through our tongue but not understood by us and therefore called sometimes glossolalia. Not to be um, uh, thought of as something that is primarily prophetic or public in its use. I think the only thing that is said of um, the, the, the gift of tongues in Corinth is, is Paul drawing back very large amounts. It, stop doing what you're doing. Not everybody at once. Cut that out. Stop it. You know what? If anybody actually thinks they have a tongue to give to the church, don't let them mutter it in the back of the crowd. Bring them up front. Once you know that it has an interpretation and the interpretation is sound, then they can go and give it to the church. And you just know, the next week, there was maybe one guy who tried to get away with it and it fell flat. And I don't think the Corinthian church kept... In other words, I don't see that as a practice that Paul is saying. In every church, people ought to have tongues given publicly, interpreted, and then it's functioning as a prophecy from God in that way. I think he's just dialing it all the way back to say, if you insist on having charismatic tongues being a public thing rather than a personal prayer language, then get an interpretation to make sure that it's legit in which 90% of the Corinthian tongues would have fallen flat. Um, any element of it that I'm coming away from? Uh, will you keep the limpet analogy in your... Did you keep the limpet analogy in is your... That, did someone really asked that? No, they didn't ask. They said, okay. this is a command, but... This is a command. That yeah. doesn't matter. Um, um, I did. You should remove... You I should didn't use it. the word limpet, though. It got updated. What's the update on limpet? You have to wait and purchase Fleshy the book. Fleshy oyster sucker. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm married to someone that knows shellfish pretty well. Um, That's such a flex. Yeah. <laughs> you just have the most riveting dinner My wife's a marine biologist. So I asked her, um, give me a modern synonym for a limpet. Um, and she did. So you'll have to, you have to read it. Uh, this one on uh, Genesis 1 verse 30. Uh, crack that one open. Uh, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. The end of the sixth day. Does this imply, what's the language? Does, uh, does this imply that God's natural intent for animals, and by extension humans, to be vegan. The last, the last four words of, words of the question were, God's what intent? Original. Original intent. But natural intent. Na- yeah, Let's I say created intent before yeah. the fall. What changed? <clears throat> is, is it a restoration of the unfallen world? Is it a good restorative thing to do to go vegan? Is that bringing back Eden? No. No, it's not. Oh. Um, we, <laughs> we have this problem sometimes where we, and I know sometimes it's just an anthropomorphism, like we just speak about God in very human ways, and we say things like, God's original tent is A, A fell through, B's here, God's scrambling for an option, he's come up with a plan last minute, and he's starting to bring it. That's not how God rules the world. God wasn't surprised when the fall occurred, and much of God's created order became carnivorous. That was the original plan. What is actually playing out in human history is the original plan. So for you to say, well, I'm going to go back because I think there's a, there's a higher order of God's original plan in Eden. The Edenic experience is a higher order of existence than the post-Edenic experience, even down to the diet that people eat. It's a failure to realize that the diet that we now eat is actually God's original plan. Secondly, when God came into our world, 
in our form, he ate meat. So there's a principle I live by and I try and teach other Christians to live by. You can't ever out-holy Jesus. You, 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 you can't be more godly than Jesus. Why not? He's literally God in human form. You're not. So whatever Jesus did becomes definitional or becomes the answer to the question, what would God do if he was literally here in human form, living the natural human life? He would eat yeah. a lot of lamb, a lot of fish, meat, bacon. Yeah. So um, if you think, well, I go back to the Edenic experience because that's somehow more pious, uh, more ethical, then I think you're missing the fact that you're trying to out-holy Jesus and it collapses, always but it, collapses. But it was the Edenic experience. That was yes. the, the and, and it wasn't it, uh, um, until later that the uh, animals became a regular part of the staple diet. Yeah. It probably took several generations for that to become normal. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> is singleness an affliction or a blessing? It's an affliction if you're not called to it. It's a blessing if you're called to it. Singleness in Scripture is a specific calling of God. It's a gift even. Celibacy is considered a gift. If you're called to it, you will find nourishment in it, but you will be unique and the exception to the rule because the rule that God has ordained for the natural human experience is to find partnership, romance, relationship, love, and procreation in the confines of marriage, and that will be the normal human experience. If you are single and you're not called to it, but you're patiently waiting for a Mr. or or Miss Wright to, to turn up on your doorstep, then capitalize and, and, and redeem your singleness for all that's worth, but be praying and preparing yourself for that future spouse that God has ordained for you. So just as every season in life can be, um, ought to be seen through the lens of ultimately a blessing from God that is sanctifying me through, strengthening me through, making me more like Jesus through, uh, you don't have to feel bad if in your singleness and a desire for a future husband or a future wife, if you feel like it sucks, that's not unholy necessarily. Uh, you, can, uh, you can wallow in self-pity and you can uh, chase the wrong ways or you can be impatient. There's ways to respond sinfully to the singleness, which is an affliction, uh, but uh, no, it's, it, it's not a measure of your own immaturity because some people seem called to singleness. I'm called to sing- so they're called to singleness as a vocation, as a calling, as a gifting. I'm called to singleness at least providentially for the moment and I hate it. They're okay with it. I hate it. Am I less holy? No, you're just called to not be single and you're struggling with the experience of singleness. Uh, How is the earth 6,000 years old when apparently science apparently repeatedly apparently shows, these are my additions, that there is evidence of an old earth? Well, is this, are you better for this one? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just reading back on my, on my memes. Uh, <coughs> I don't know because I don't know what I, I don't know what the person what evidence the person is looking to. If by science tells us the Earth is old, you mean when I read scientific journals, they tell me the Earth is old. It's a very different scientists telling you with their prerequisite and preconceived um, opposition to the Word of God and to their atheistic materialistic worldview. Them telling us that the earth is older and the science says so is not the same thing as the science saying so. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't die on the hill of earth being to the dot 6,000 years, but I'm not going to be old age in a, in a sense of 
time for gap theory, time for millions of years, time for evolution prior to the fall or, or, or arriving at Adam and then the fall occurs, none of that. Um, uh, a couple of the, if I, if I take this as the most generic question, hey, if we were to do honest science, it, it probably doesn't feel like everything puts us to a 6,000-year-old earth. Okay, some of the reasons for that is because God created what, what we call a, a mature universe. In other words, God created a, a, just as God created Adam, fully grown human. And so it might be a bit confusing to do some science on him, do a blood test and go, oh, you're a 42-year-old male when he's actually six days old. So also we might look at the earth and go, there seems to be signs of, not of aging, but of age. It looks full, older or mature. Well, because God created in its full state. So in other words, God didn't just plant a whole bunch of soil and a whole bunch of seeds, but he planted trees. Did they have rings on them? I don't know. If we dug up those original trees and found out these were there in 6,000 BC and they did science on them, you know, science on them, and found out, oh, they're actually 150 years old, does that, you know, push against scriptural narrative? So I think number, number one would be there. Um, what that influences, though, is, of course, that atheist scientists and Christian interpretation of the world around us, which would be science, uh, are starting at different starting points. An atheist will ask, since there is no God and all of the answers that we will find are in this system and, uh, uh, and we require the old age theory for life on earth to make any sense since it wasn't created, it evolved, how then does this evidence fit the narrative they've been told? Uh, that, that's, uh, so to recognize, don't think that all scientists out there are neutral because they're scientists, not religious teachers, right? No one is truly neutral when they're dealing with the evidence. If you're thinking of the universe, as far as why does the universe look so old? Like, why can we see light, uh, stars that are millions of light years away when light kind of been traveling for millions of years because it's only a younger, younger universe? Um, there's good answers for that that, that, that uh, um, people find, Christians find in the uh, reality of, of um, now I'm, I'm going to forget which one of this, whether it's general relativity or, or whatever, but the reality that uh, the the um, the expanding universe or, or those things towards uh, further from the center of the universe or further from gravitational density and pull, et cetera, et cetera, time will go slower out there so that light may have been traveling to us for 62 million years, Earth years that only be 6,000 years, things like that. There's, there's better books that you can go and read on that uh, than what um, I'm suggesting. But I would say the science doesn't tell us that we're in an old Earth. Uh, the science, I'm not going to die on the hill that would say that the Earth is to the dot 6,000 years. Um, uh, but yes, the, the, the historical narrative given to us in Genesis and then referred to later on in places like Exodus and in Jesus' language, God speaks through those pages as if the Genesis account is actual narrative of actual 24-hour days. So if, if we're bound by Scripture, and we ought to be, that's why we can land just against every other scientific journal. Uh, but all enemies will bend their knee to Christ and eventually the scientific consensus will be in submission to the word of God. That's my belief. Next question. Tom and Craig, do you hold a, oh, he answered that, cessationist or continuationist view? Continuationist. Reformed charismatic. Happy with that? Sam Stormsian? Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard people say, that, oh, 
that cigarettes are sinful, but cigars are not. <laughs> cigars are, in fact, an active, meritorious, righteous act. Huh. No, no, but cigars are not. How do I understand this? It's, um, it's, it's a spectrum, right? Like, we all do things every day in our life that may or may not contribute to our health or may or may not contaminate our health. Like, every day we do things. Someone went out just now to get a, you know, some food at our fellowship dinner and maybe ate a little too much of those delicious sweet chicken wings. Like, it's possible that you may have done something today to, to kind of tip the balance on whether today gets kind of scratched down as the healthiest day of your life or a little less than that or a lot less than that. So it is with what we might consider like, like indulgences of Christian liberty, right? Like we might say, Jesus clearly drank uh, fermented grape juice. There's a word for that. It's wine, right? Um, I've spent a lot of time with some good Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, and uh, the grape juice argument just, uh, it gets old and, uh, and very thin. So Jesus drank wine, um, and, and some wine is good for you. In fact, the Bible literally says a certain degree of wine is healthy for you. Now, we probably have modern innovation of medication that we can probably take to do the same thing. So you may scrap the wine because you're, you're not sure if you're going to have the self-control to handle that or you've got a loved one that might cause them to stumble. Whatever you choose to do within the realm of your Christian liberty is perfectly up to you. However, when it comes to other people expressing their Christian liberty, you don't really have the, you don't really have the authority to impose upon them. That's part of the challenge. So what the question is probably getting at is that typically it's accepted that the kind of tobacco intake that is not inhaled into the lungs and the bloodstream directly through. That means the kind of tobacco intake like a pipe or a cigar, which you might just puff and enjoy the flavor in your mouth and, and puff it back out, has been shown through longitudinal studies in research. The CDC released a study in 2016 actually on this. But the CDC is a dirty word now, right? No one trusts that anymore. But You're in Australia. There was once... Oh, we're in Australia. I don't know what we use. Okay. Um, Center for Disease Control in those United States of America released a study showing that a certain amount of cigar use per day has 0.0000% chance of increasing risk of cancer. So there's been studies done on this, and it boils down to the fact that if you're a cigarette smoker inhaling you know, nicotine into your lungs, you're at a far higher risk than if you're, maybe you like a cigar, but they're both a risk, right? So, so use your Christian liberty as you feel your conscience dictates and you feel like God would have you. Don't judge a brother or criticize someone else. There are Christians that smoke cigarettes, and... Well, maybe they shouldn't, right? Maybe I shouldn't eat as many buffalo chicken wings that I do uh, on the Lord's Day most Sundays back in Rochester. So this is just the way we all live our lives. Let's give each other grace and, and mercy. Um, I don't think you can categorize cigars as holy and cigarettes as of the devil. Um, that, to me, seems a little bit two-dimensional and perhaps unhelpful. I'm sure the question was but asking the... Jess, though. Maybe not? No, okay. no, uh, no. Possibly and probably not. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, but but, but if somebody's... Been, no, I'm, I would just say that to, to connect it to the wording of the question, if somebody is being told cigarettes are the sinful one, I just do cigars, uh, and you're buying into that, or, well, really, where's that yeah. verse? Uh, uh, the angle they're probably going on, no, cigarettes are like cure, inhale, addiction, death. Cigars yeah. are actually, they're good for your skin. I don't know. Um, uh, that's probably where they're going. Unhealthy equals sin. But, but as you've said, even that needs to be pushed against again. You can't even say, hey, you're doing something unhealthy, you're in sin. Uh, first of all, not your job to be, not any of our job to be micromanaging other Christians' degrees of healthiness and whatever. Uh, are you going to go and take the guy who works on top of buildings and say, he's taking too much risk, get down, he's in sin, he's doing a risky job, you should go and work in an office? Oh, no, that gets blood clots. Oh, you should 
No, we're not chasing each other up for all that. Uh, as you said, far more grace and far less yeah. uh, semantics. Speaking of semantics and speaking of the uh, hypostatic union, okay. is it better to say that Jesus is truly man, truly God, uh-huh. or fully man, <laughs> fully God, or is that just semantics? Help me out. If, if someone's, been, someone's been getting into some RC Sproul, um, because the story is that John MacArthur and Sproul were doing a Q&A. The person that asked this question probably knows this story. MacArthur told the story. They're afraid of being horribly wrong. Yeah. So I don't want to cross yeah. Sproul. No, I understand. So just quickly, the background story is they're at a conference doing a Q&A panel on stage, and MacArthur starts saying, you know, Jesus, hypostatic union is fully God, fully man, speaking, in, speaking quantitatively, and Sproul interrupts him as... R.C. Sproul was one to do, and he says, not fully, truly, truly, veritas, he's truly God. So God can't be partitioned or portioned out. You can't be 70% God. If you're saying you're truly God, then you're exhaustively God. So here's, here's how this works. In everyday nomenclature, we may say to our friend, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and we mean he's exhaustively God. And he's truly man in every way that humans experience their humanity, with the one exception that Jesus did not inherit from Adam corruption or he never, and he never sinned. So I'm not going to hate on anyone that uses the phrase fully, fully. In fact, sometimes I'll use it myself. Technically, it is probably more accurate to say truly God and truly man. And no one's surprised that R.C. Sproul is technically correct. Yes. And yet, yeah, yet the, the reason he's saying it's wrong was because you're thinking of the, the, the person Jesus, he has 100% of being of something. And it seems that we're saying he's 100% of his being God, well, then there's no room for anything else. Yeah. The people usually say, no, he's not 50% God, 50% man, he's 100% God, 100% man, therefore fully God, fully man. The fullness of God is in him. Was a full human nature there? Yes. So yeah. either. And but one consequence of this, and a lot of Christians perhaps uh, uh, maybe a little bit um, perhaps not clear, a little bit naive on this, is if someone ever asks you, did Jesus have one will or two wills, it's at, that, it's at those types of junctures that this doctrine really matters because if he has an exhaustively truly human will and he's human, then that's one. And if he's exhaustively God, then he is and has the will of God. So the person Jesus, not with, not with conflict or tension, but he can and does in that very unique experience of the person who is Jesus, uniting two true natures in the one man, and he unites them eternally. And that's where some of these things, kind of the rubber hits the road on that, to, to think about Jesus as not, a, as not a normal man, but as the unique man, the God man, the savior of mankind. Yeah, the sense in which he, and this comes up a little bit when we're studying Hebrews or even Romans 8, that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. You say, well, he wasn't sinful like us, so he wasn't fully like us. Or we would say he had some experiences unique to us, so he wasn't truly like us. Or um, to say that he was unique man means, you know, to be human is to be sinful. He wasn't sinful. He actually doesn't know what it's like to be truly human. And we would say, no, we are truly human fallen. Because he was truly human unfallen doesn't make him not truly human. It just makes him not... Truly fallen human. So he was in the likeness of sinful flesh because he was in human flesh just without sin and for sin, Romans 8.3 says, but not with sin. 
came for the sin in our likeness. So yes, he was unique. And so saying Jesus, like you said, he was a unique man, yes. doesn't get away from the, I thought he suffered what we suffered and where he's sympathetic with us because he was like us. Yeah. Doesn't push against that at all. Uh, and that helps maybe for the next question. Why is studying theology so important? Stud- studying oh. theology is so important because it's the reflection and studying of God. It's God's revelation of himself and nothing should delight the Christian more than learning more about the God that created them and is saving them and sustains them in the grace of God. That doesn't mean we're all going to have the same appetite for theological study. It doesn't mean we're all going to carry around deep and thick tomes of systematic theology. But it does mean that all of us will have a healthy appetite to study the things of God because we have been made new in God's in Christ's image and God is giving us his grace. We know how to worship him. We know how to understand our salvation. We know how to live out the implications of the gospel and the word as we study Theology. It is actually the general and the normal Christian practice to study theology. Um, on tonight's topic a little bit. Is our future home in heaven? No, I'll give you one. And then we'll go back to this okay. other one. Uh, there was something here. Do animals go to heaven? Do animals go to hell? Do you want... You want yeah, me, yeah, you, you go want, for it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm fine with our conflict on this okay, to good. be known. Tom, <laughs> Tom knows... Fundamental. He and I is. have things we disagree on, and I need his permission if I'm going to say something I know he disagrees on, um, because this, he's the pastor of this church. Uh, pains me to say it. But, I raise uh, my scepter. You, yeah. may, you may approach. I may. Um, heaven or hell? No. Animals are not going to heaven or hell. But this is where I have a very unique view on this. I think that all animals within the categories that Adam named in Eden before God gave him a wife will be resurrected in the new earth. Resurrected in the new earth. That's what I believe. Explain a little bit what you mean by the categories. that. So we, we go and DNA warp up and splice a couple of animals and create the zonkey. Yeah, no, or no, something. no, 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 no. Not going to be there? But also like not flies and mosquitoes. Like Adam didn't name every biologically categorized Adam, a- animal. Adam named those animals that God brought to him that could reflect to Adam the lack of proper relationship, but animals that could have some substance of that. So think like mammals and and different things that God would assemble before Adam. He would name them, which was an act of dominance and an act of his kingship and his rule of the earth, which was his rightful uh, gift of God in, in, in in the covenant of Adam. And I think that all those animals in those categories that Adam named, I think that, and there's two reasons. Firstly, because I believe that the curse of death that was enacted upon them will be reversed because the curse of death that was enacted upon them wasn't their fault and they weren't to blame. And so I think that when Jesus makes all things new and it's a new creation, he reverses that death that they suffer on account of Adam's sin and they re-inhabit the new earth in glory and in perfection as we enjoy animals like we do now. But in that state, it'll be in a perfect harmonious and glorious way there you're going to find almost no one else saying that so just dismiss that it it, it doesn't matter but that's I my felt point it would of be view. fun if you answered it though. yeah and i've got a, a lot more of a depressing news for all you animal lovers that none of your animals will be uh known to you in heaven that there will be all animals of all categories recreated brought into life enjoyed in the finalized new heaven and the new earth but because they don't have souls or a continuation of uh uh consciousness or memories or personality they will just be new animals likely some of the original ones mostly new and glorified upgraded um animals 
which I guess is the decisive word on the matter. Mm. And we're going to go to the next one. Sounded unconvincing. Is isn't our it? first, is our future, this is interesting, is our future home in heaven? So we've, uh, you, so let's even duck back to that. You said, no, yeah. they won't be in heaven, these animals. No. They will be in the new earth. Yeah. Because we're talking about the intermediate state, yeah. which we are not in a soul sleep. Once you die, you don't sleep. Your body sleeps. Your soul is alive in Christ's presence. Yeah. But the intermediate state is what we talk about between when you die and when Jesus comes back and resurrects everybody. The general resurrection, we call it. Yeah. Um, uh, that's the intermediate state wherein we are with, hev- with Jesus in heaven. He's the only one in heaven with a body, except for Elijah and Enoch. Enoch. And maybe but Moses. they don't have glorified bodies. They have their old bodies that they went into heaven with. Whereas Jesus is the only one whose body is made up of new creation stuff. He's the only glorified person. And everyone else is just disembodied souls. And you're like, oh, that sounds like, that sounds weird. We go, yeah, Paul agrees. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, we want, that will be a state of, yes, better than here. We want to be with Jesus. But even there, we will long to be further clothed. So yes. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so intermediate state is heaven. Or Hades or hell, whatever people want to call it. And then there is the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus recreates the physical world. Um, and that's the new heaven, new earth that yeah. you were talking about. Um, and we could say a new hell, or rather, if lake we use revelation language, the lake of fire. Yeah. The second death. Yeah. So in, in light of that, is our future home in heaven here on earth or somewhere up yonder, as the Bible speaks as both the new heaven and the new earth? Yeah. So, so we'll just, if we want to turn this into our nomenclature, we should rather say, is our future in glory, so glory is the language that we give the new heaven and the new earth, is our future home in glory on earth or in the new heaven? Is it on the new earth or in the new heaven? On the new earth. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is the, the total and complete fulfillment of the promise, covenant promise to Adam that he will possess the world. Now, I did a whole teaching series a few years ago on the Garden of Eden And one of the really important points I wanted to press home in that teaching series was that the original intent for Adam, again, I'm using original intent, I criticized that before, but you guys know my language, was that Adam was meant to actually expand the garden. That was was the dominion. Like, Adam was to cultivate a garden of perfection, of fruitfulness, of, of productivity, and he was meant to expand that. This is why in those earlier verses of the description of the world, the four rivers are named because in the ancient world, navigation and exploration happens along rivers. So Adam's meant to trace these four rivers that expand out across the world and cause the world to, be, to just be usurped by this, this garden. That was, now, that's, that's where Adam failed. He didn't last very long. He committed the sin along with Eve of eating the forbidden fruit. And he was expelled from the garden. The garden was guarded, of course, by, by God's uh, angel. And then the flood almost certainly swept it away. There's no garden of Eden to be found on earth today. But the new earth will be the fulfillment of that promise to Adam. And when we get to the new earth, we'll be able to continue that work of Adam in cultivating, building, designing, planning, expanding, and being fruitful. This time, not through procre- procreation. That won't be part of the new world but through uh, innovativeness and, and, and development and, and causing our creativity to go to new heights and new expressions. The joy of, the, of our master that we enter into in glorious uh, reward is not sipping on divine cocktails in a new heaven and a new earth, Florida. It's getting back to work. We were faithful over, yeah. over the over, uh, uh, 
10 talents, we're going to be given 10 cities. There's work, there's hierarchy, we've talked about this before, a restoration and glorification of all of those things. Anybody who's looking for your YouTube channel, Pastor Craig Island on YouTube, I've just put in the link as one of the questions, it's just there in the text, so you can go and click on that if you want, and one of the playlists will be, what was it? The Garden of Eden. I think it's just called the Garden of Eden, although I don't know, if you find it, you'll know, you'll know what it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, 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 do you ever do evangelism in New York City? What's it like? You, let, let, me, let me help them. Uh, Craig, does, Craig lives in New York. In fact, let me, news for some today that I had lunch with. There is New York State and there is New York City. New York City is the island Manhattan, basically, area. And then the New York State is actually quite large. In fact, news to me today... New York City is not the capital of New York State. That seems like a total oversight. That was dumb. And it's Aberdeen. What is it? <laughs> Albuquerque. What's the title? Albany. 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 Uh, is the uh, capital of Texas. And you're in Rochester, which is yes. north, almost on the border of Canada. We're right on Lake Ontario. In the Finger Lakes. Yeah. So we're all really glad I said that. And no I'm one not cares. Why I was... Oh, no yeah, one, do you ever do... No event... What's evangelism like in America? Or do you uh, ever travel to the city, which is yeah. 10 hours away? Six hours to New York City, yeah. Uh, no, no, Rochester's a big enough city, a million people. Buffalo's 45 minutes down the road, a million and a half people. So we got lots of opportunities. Part of the challenge we have, this will be a surprise to no one, is that there's actually still a lot of COVID cautiousness in that part of the world and still a lot of um, phobia. You can't get on university campuses like we had previously been able to do. But we love to just go on campuses, walk up to people, distribute gospel tracts, get in conversations, share Jesus um, just for me personally, that kind of kind of confrontational evangelism, that sounds like an aggressive word. I find that to be the most fruitful. I've got no problem talking with anyone about spiritual matters and Jesus and his claim in our lives. And so we found that, uh, we found that very useful. Although in, of late, we've had to get a little more creative and try and be more attractional, trying to get people onto our church campus because we're not really allowed on the university campuses right now. Um, loving our... Na- uh, uh sort of in dot point four. How, how should we think about loving our neighbor as Christians in sports that involve physically hurting each other? Crying emoji. Uh, example, boxing, rugby, gladiators, mm. etc. cetera. Uh, biblical view on sport fighting, question mark. Um, or sin. <laughs> Utter sin. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm a big fan. Actually. You've never competed in um, a sport, have you? In BJJ, <laughs> in a... a in a, uh, a sport that would inflict any pain on anybody else, would you was have, this, Craig? Was this your plan to get me here and just to mock me in front of all your friends? No. Um, Feels good. So I think, I think the essence of the question, how do you love your neighbor in a sport where, you know, kind of embedded and baked into the idea of the sport is to tackle the opposition player in such a way that he's not going to get up and quickly play the ball, right? And maybe you bruise some ribs or maybe um, he gets a mild concussion. The way you love your neighbor in that sport is to tackle him like that, right? It's to, it's to cohere with the mutual agreement of why the sport exists. Not to be malicious, not to derive some sadistic pleasure out of seeing someone else hurt. Um, all these things are voluntary. When I, when I compete in MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, someone can tap and can get out whenever they want. No one's forcing you. But if you keep walking toward me, I'm going to choke you out. And that's, not, like, that's how I love you. Because that's how, we, that's how we play this game yeah. that you volunteered and wanted to play. Um, what so, we do... so as to run up to somebody and tackle them at the bank is not loving your neighbor because they didn't agree with you. Yeah. Let's 
enter into a competitive conquest where you yes. need to do this to me. Yes. And then, of course, we abide by the rules. Yeah. Upon what agreement did they enter onto this field? Well, there's a list of rules in there in the great gentleman's sport of rugby union or the, the scrappy rugby league or MMA or whatever, whatever else. And it's not less Christian to have less rules if it's no hold barred and you agree to the death. Not to the death, that would be unchristian. <laughs> to the first blood, right? And it, and it is less padded than maybe American football. Uh, and you go, yeah, legitimate option for injury, but entered into wisely. I didn't, and that's why we have weight categories. So a lot of the common grace stuff has already been put in here. It's not the same as gladiators where slaves and victims get thrown in with beasts and you're watching them kill each other. A guy of a certain weight agreed to a fight, a guy of a certain weight uh, according to certain rules... And, and, and so it goes. Yeah. I, we have to be careful of sissifying our Christianity, right? <laughs> like, I know that's the problem. The person who asked the question wasn't necessarily promoting that. But any form of Christianity that looks like we're kind of neutering ourselves, especially us as men, is really not the Christianity of the Bible. It really has very little reflection on the Christianity of the Bible. And again, I know that wasn't necessarily part of the question, but I think it needs to be said. A good Christian football player is the one that obeys the rules because the rules are worth obeying and that's the terms of agreement and plays hard. And mm. if someone gets hurt, that's what happens in sport and not even just contact sport. Most of the worst injuries I've ever suffered were when I was like training and doing something terribly innocuous and not paying attention. So it's not about injury mitigation or reduction of risk. It's about the good Christian way to do something is to do it with all your heart, the best mm. you can do it, provided you follow the conditions on the agreement that's set. And when you're in a culture or a team or, or you're lining up before the game and you were to tell them, I won't tackle you hard, I won't run at you hard, I'll, I'll go easy on you. A guy sitting opposite you on the, on the field hates nothing more than that. There is a love that, that neighbours can show to each other. Going, you put in everything you got, I'll put in everything I got, so that at the end, the result of the competition is an honest result. So it's not just that it's not evil, it's actually a, a good thing that, Christ, that, that humans and Christians can engage in for sport and fun and enjoyment and uh, all of that. Yeah. What is the, uh, will all female preachers go to hell? I feel like this is to you. Uh, is that, is you've been preaching a lot about female preachers lately. Is that, a, is that a real question? It's a real question. It's there. Wow. I, I can't tell that it's not a joke, but it had enough likes on it for people to oh say. Oh, my goodness. I have an, I'm actually after an answer for that. Um, and you can tag me if you want. Not necessarily. You don't seem like you want to. No, I just don't understand the category that if someone sins, they go to hell. Yeah. Like, this is going to shock you, but in the last 48 hours, I'm pretty sure I've sinned. I can't recall what it was, but I know I haven't had an every possible attitude or love the Lord my God with every ounce of my being like I ought to have. Female preaching in a, in a mixed audience, particularly on the Lord's Day as, 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 a, as, a, as a pastor or elder, is a sin... But we have to remember that, you know, you might say that if this female's been preaching for decade after decade and she's unrepentant, then maybe she's not saved. That might be a good evidence she's not saved. But if you're saying that as a Christian, she's in error, welcome to the club. Or dare I say, welcome to the church, right? Like there's not a person in this room that hasn't sinned today. That's just the reality of it. So we have to be very careful of Christians that we don't have this category that sin immediately excludes you from the grace of God. That's, that's Finneyism, that's Pelagianism, that's not the gospel of grace. But maybe if someone's unrepentant and they're insistent that they're going to preach, that might demonstrate someone that's not really regenerate, right? But again, we don't know that with certainty. We just, we just wait for judgment and let God 
pass things out however he pleases. You might have something to add to that, but I think you've answered in quite a soft way. And the reality is that <laughs> no, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, of course you would look at and and of course like a a female preacher, but if she, but she's in a good church or an otherwise good church, fairly doctrinally sound, and she preaches regularly, but under the the authority of the male elders, and she's and that church is a soft complementarian church. Yeah, I think that's erroneous and uh, bad ecclesiology and that church is going downhill quick if that sort of thing is not rectified and that's symptomatic of a poor hermeneutic and application. But I'm not making a claim on her theology. Until I hear her deny the gospel or live a lifestyle that is antithetical to the gospel, that's not what you should have gotten from my sermon on Jezebel. I hope that you got that from somebody else. This one has six likes, so I'm obligated to answer it. Who is the most autistic Bible character? There was none. Stop watching The Chosen. I'm sick of having to tell you this. Where is she? I know who asked this. Yeah, there's, there's no autistic Bible characters. What's even happening right so now? So there's, there's a... Ca- Every now and then a question comes up that I can tell. Somebody's watching The Chosen and it's, and it's, and it's leaking in. How do, you, how do you watch The Chosen? How do you no, know? No, I just know that somebody has, no has said to us, chosen. hey, you know, Matthew, so good with numbers, tax collector, okay. kind of an outsider, yeah. they make him out to be autistic. Oh, Isn't okay. that a beautiful spin that represents people in our modern day? No. Write your own story about an autistic tax collector who gets swept up in, by a religious zealot. Write your own book about the redemptive qualities of grace in the life of an autistic person. Don't try and make God's story better by tainted modern-day uh, conditions or diagnoses and are trying to apply them back onto the apostles and trying to pretty up or put makeup on Jesus' otherwise boring story. Uh, no, none of them are autistic. If any of them, if we get to heaven, it turns out that some of them had autism, you're, you're not permitted to think that now because the scripture has not told us so. So any kind of theory around that is preposterous and you silly. Sound, you sound really autistic. I want to know what you mean by that. I don't know what the word means. <laughs> I don't know what autism is. You know, guys, they paint well, they design things, or they draw well, they're, they're artistic. Question here, how do Christians best fight the Great Reset? The answer to this in every generation is that you come to stand firm on Saturday the 17th of December and you listen intently. I will give you a tip, but here's the the general. You, You listen intently to the address that I will give, the last one of the day, so stay all day, on the mission of God. In preparation for that sermon, for that lecture, that message, you go and read Psalm 2 where we see the kings of the earth, or if you want, the elites of the world, the intelligentsia, the social uh, uh, programmers and all of those people uh, who try and throw off the laws of God. So move, move you know, socially engineer everything away from God, away from his mission, away from his purposes, who are elite and conspiring in all these ways, right? The truest of ever, if ever there has been a conspiracy theory, that is what uh, God is speaking of in Psalm chapter 2. The, na- the rulers of the nations rage and God has a chuckle at their expense. They're idiots for thinking that they can derail God's mission, but how dare the church give them some gre- credence and worry. So come to Stan Furman, we'll talk more about it. Um, uh, and the next question. Uh, um, 
Uh, what are some of your, while well, I find another one, what are some of your, Craig, modern, but also historic teachers you enjoy and learn much from? Thomas Other than Thomas Ford. Yeah. Ford. A given. Yes. Yes. Even just now I've learned so much. What of mine would you have read? <laughs> just being in the glow of your star, your rising star, Thomas. Um, Charles Spurgeon is a really easy answer. Um, I recommend everyone reads more Spurgeon. Um, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, uh, brilliant missionaries that took the Great Commission very seriously and gave up their lives for that. That cause, um, maybe more modern guys. I, I love everything Sinclair Ferguson does. Brilliant theologian, Presbyterian brother. Uh, works out uh, with Ligonier, but he has other projects sort of on the on the go as well. Um, uh, Carl Truman, um, historian, professor, brilliant, brilliant man. Great uh, accent. Uh, yeah, Oxford accent. Great guy. The, the list could be endless, so I won't try and bore you. Um, but that it, gives you a few names. Who's, who's your top uh, living theologian? Now, theologian, not just preacher. Thomas Ford. Correct. Yeah. Correct. What is uh, your favorite dead theologian? Theologian? Yeah. For his theology as well? Yeah. Stuff. Uh, um, Better theologian than Aquinas. Uh, why does, uh, no, sorry, there was a good one here that I've just, uh, does God know who will go to hell? And if he does, then how can they have the free will to choose to be saved? Uh, yes, God knows who will go to hell, but not with the knowledge that we think of when we say no. When we know something, it's because we've seen something on the outside of us, interpreted that, that data, come to a conclusion, and we call that knowledge. I know something because I've uh, put two things together in my mind, and I understand it as fact. God doesn't know like that. God's knowledge is, in fact, if we can be careful with this language, his knowledge is secondary to his decisions. So he has decided what will be true of history. Therefore, he knows what will happen tomorrow. He doesn't look forward and see what is happening tomorrow and therefore know it. So his knowledge is secondary to his what we call decrees, the things that he decided will happen or predestined to happen before the foundations of the world even started. Um, so if that concept is new to you, uh, probably so also will the next bit, which is that we probably, uh, the way that you think of free will is, is probably going to be uh, a wrongful way of thinking about biblical free will. Free will in the Bible or, or the sense that you are, uh, you have freedom to choose to, to uh self-actualize things based on your decisions, um, if that isn't congruent with the fact that God knows it and has already planned that, if you have to choose between one of them, first of all, you're defining free will wrong and you need to get rid of it, but also you don't have that kind of free will. You don't have the libertarian, your choice is absolute um, freedom that you have. In fact, all that you have is the secondary human level of free will, which is that you get to choose and make real decisions. So rather, in the reformed camp, instead of saying we have free will, we would use the language of you have free agency. You have responsibility as an image bearer of God for the decisions you make. And if you say, that's not enough, I want to make sure that the decision I make is not influenced in the slightest 
by the fact that God has an overarching preordained plan for history, then to that God would just say, that's not your prerogative. You don't get to choose that world. That world where you are not in subordination to me doesn't exist. I'm God. You're in my world. You will be held responsible not for what God has decreed. You will never be held responsible for what God has decreed. You will be held responsible for your decisions. Did God decree your decisions? Yes. But see the, see the duality. You're not being held accountable for the fact that God used it for his plan and planned for it to happen. You're being held accountable for the part that you played in it to decide and to sin and to choose or not for either good or bad. Um, so yes, God knows because he first plans. And yes, that means we change the definition of what free will really means. If you're looking for a better work on that, uh, somebody will be able to lend you in this church or we can get you on. Um, Everyone's a Theologian by uh, R.C. Sproul. And, there'll be some, and it's basically an introduction to good theology. And there'll be a chapter or two in there that talk about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our freedom. This is a really interesting question. Is all the sins of the elect more condemnation than the unforgivable sin? Or is it merit, does it merit more, do they merit more condemnation than the unforgivable sin? So maybe, maybe what's the, the maths in the person's mind is going, all of the elect can be saved because they're atoned in Christ. Yeah. And yet there's one sin out there that cannot be forgiven. So is that because it's of more sin than the merit of Christ's death? Or is that because it's more sinful than the sins of all the elect? Is that what the, is, maybe, it's, uh, maybe that's what's going on in the mind? And if it's not, maybe put your question in again, but I'll answer that one, which is that it's the nature of the unforgivable sin that makes it unforgivable. It's not the quantity of wickedness or the heinousness of it in its essence. It's because the nature of the unforgivable sin is to resist the wooing work of the Holy Spirit and to reject and be calloused against that. And you cannot be forgiven unless you are the Spirit draws you to Christ and you repent and believe. If you reject the Holy Spirit, that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, blasphemy against the Father, forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son, forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, cannot, will not ever be forgiven because the Spirit is the person of the Trinity that draws people into vital communion and, 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 and reconciliation with God. And those that reject the Spirit, of course they're proving they're not elect, because the elect cannot reject the Spirit. The Spirit so overwhelms them, so alters their predisposition that they do come and believe. But those that reject the Spirit, they are blaspheming the Spirit. That is an act by which the result is you cannot be forgiven. Not because the act is more heinous than if you blaspheme the Father or you blaspheme the Son. It's because by that act, you cut yourself up from any hope of actually repenting and receiving the forgiveness that we also desperately need. Uh, a lighter question. Does the golden rule treat others the way that you would wish to be treated apply to animals? No, but kinda. Uh, Proverbs will tell us that a righteous man regards the life of his ox or treats, treats nice. Yeah, if walking around kicking animals which have been given to us for dominion, which doesn't mean abuse, but which means utilizing for God's purposes, uh, that includes treating them well, beneficially, as God's vice regents on the earth, um, uh, don't be harsh to animals, but no, I wouldn't say treat. When Jesus says others, he's meaning other human beings who bear the image of God. That's his context. So not, no, it's not, it's not the, it's not the golden rule. Because can you flip it around? I'm going to treat this cat the way that I hope this cat treats me. 
Nah, it's totally asymmetrical. But yes, be nice to animals. Um, what should a young man do who wants to lean into serving the kingdom but is struggling to find his way in that practically day to day? Go and tell someone about Jesus. Go and speak to your pastor and elders and ask for opportunities to volunteer and serve. Give your life for the church and the Great Commission and you will not be lacking opportunities or things to do. If you're looking for a really functional, immediate uh, uh, discipline, go and grab a wad of our tracks or request from one of the deacons if they're not out in the foyer, which they should be, and make a discipline. I'm going to hand out one tract every day. If I get to the end of the day, I'm going to bed, realize I didn't hand one out, I go out on the street, I at least put it into somebody's letterbox. Make it a discipline so that it becomes a habit, so it becomes second nature, so that you're always looking for those opportunities. Uh, that would be one immediate thing to start doing. And you'll start look, finding God opening doors like that. Uh, um, uh, questions about dinosaurs. Um, why did God give Eve to Adam in Eden, which was perfection, but no marriage in heaven or in glory? Yeah, the easy answer is Eden is not exactly the same thing as glory. There's continuity and discontinuity between Eden and glory. The biggest and most obvious one is in Eden, as Adam, you have the potentiality to sin. In glory, we are so sealed in righteousness, there's no potentiality to sin. Now, in that first iteration of the human experience, God's design was that the earth would be populated. In the new earth, it's already populated because the new covenant way of understanding the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply is to be missional and convert souls for the new earth in the world to come. So it's not like we're saying line everything that happens in Eden up with everything that happens in the new earth and they should be identical. There's a lot of things that don't actually connect or marry up perfectly. Uh, but there are things that do connect and there are things that do agree. Um. How should I understand the concept of overcome sin, of overcoming sin? We are told in Scripture specifically about overcoming the world, overcoming temptation, but not, it does not mention about overcoming sin. I think I've added the right prefixes and suffixes to make that a more cohesive sentence. I know there's a character limit on these things. Um, yeah, well, the preponderance of the Bible is that we would fight against sin and be victorious over it, through the means of grace that God has given us. Means of grace are simple Christian disciplines. Means of grace are big Christian disciplines, like go on a mission trip, read your Bible daily, pray to the Lord, fellowship with saints, get to church, listen to your pastors and elders well, uh, enjoy the sacraments of the Lord of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we engage in those things, now what I'm saying is the preponderance of Scripture, you may not be able to find the exact wording in sequence, overcome or conquer sin like that, but clearly, Scripture wants us to be engaged in this war and to be increasingly successful and victorious in this war. You should have less sin right now in your life that you're actively engaged with than you had when you first came to faith because you should be more like Jesus today than when you first came to faith. Sanctification is progressive and it is victorious and it leads to ultimate glorification, which is when we shed this body of death and our souls goes to be with Jesus in glory and awaits the resurrection of our bodies and we live in perfect uh, harmony with all the saints and Jesus. Yeah, I think um, maybe to add the, the background theology of, of the question, like where do we, it seems it's saying, I can see the verses, 1 John 5, overcoming the world, John 16, overcoming the world, overcoming temptation, I can see that there. 
but I don't see where it's mentioned about overcoming sin, a good, a good place to go and jump in would be Romans 6, where we, uh, the language overcoming sin will not be used there, but definitely um, the, fo- the following phrases are used about the Christian's relationship to sin now that you're alive in Christ. We see him say uh, uh, that verse 6, sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, that we have been set free from sin, that we will live with him. Um, Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, Do not let sin reign in your body. Do not obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. Um, Sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. Um, so all, all of these are, are basically synonyms for in, in the first 12 verses of Romans uh, 6 of you conquering sin, not without the spirit, as Romans 8 will tell us, not without the gospel, as Romans 4 and 5 has told us, not without the resurrection power of Jesus in us. Of course, it's all through the spirit, by Jesus, in the gospel. First of all, by faith in Christ, that is where sin is first killed, um, and yet all of that language is there of overcoming sin in a real, tangible, uh, visible way in our lives. Uh, <clears throat> easy one on covenant theology. Was there a promise of life given to Adam? Or wh- where was that life, promise of life given to Adam? There was only punishment for disobedience. So yeah. where's the flip side? And secondly, where is it called a covenant? Uh, it's called a covenant in Hosea 6. Yep. I suppose the question I wanted to know where in Genesis. Um, it's not essential Maybe. that Moses recorded every conversation that God and Adam had, but the rest of the scripture again brings this to bear, that in Adam all die. That means Adam has to be a federal head of a, of a, of a group of humanity that all suffer death under his failure. That's, that's a covenant. That's a federal headship. The promise of life is clearly inferred through the curse of death that comes through failing. So, again, we don't need both. It would almost be tautological and redundant to have both. But if the curse is if you fail, Adam, you die, but you live in perpetuity. In fact, you live not just in perpetuity, but unto reward of being sealed in righteousness and eternal life is essentially embedded in the curse that comes due to failure. Now, some may argue that sounds kind of speculative. Of course, our hermeneutic, according to the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, is always not just what's explicitly on the page, but what is also there by necessary inference. What is, what, what is explicit on the page has to infer by necessity other conclusions that we naturally draw. When we see those other conclusions backed up in Scripture, like Hosea 6, where God is speaking to Israel and he says to wayward Israel, you, like Adam, have spurned the covenant, broken the covenant. Then we begin to understand that Adam was in a covenant under covenantal conditions that come with rewards because that's the nature of a covenant. And of course, Adam broke that to be taken up again by the second, the new Adam who succeeded and fulfilled and then brought a new humanity into victory. So in Christ, all are made alive. And, and um, by the time you get to the New Testament and Paul writing in especially Romans 5 and a bit in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that as the second Adam, Christ gains for us through his um, second Adam covenant, which, which, which gives us a, a hermeneutic now to, to reflect the covenant of Jesus and the covenant of Adam because they were both Adams. 
Jesus was not just told, go down to earth, and if you fail, you'll die, and all of your race with you. But upon, of course, and it's a lot more explicit in the covenant that Christ had with his father, that upon success, there would be life given uh, eternally. And so to, to, to bring the, what, is, what is spoken in more fullness about Christ, but being told he's the second Adam, fulfilling the second lot of Adam covenant, we can then impute a great deal of that to, yeah. to, to Adam and say, so obviously what he lost was what Christ gained as the second Adam, which was not just the not dying, but the eschatological life or the eternal life given to the, to the reward. Um, uh, I'll, give you, uh, uh, I'll give you this one as a little sitter. What is Thomistic doctrine and why is there a fuss about it recently? Oh. Apparently among Reformed Baptists. So in other words, yep. the Twitter sphere is going weird. Baptists are fighting, classic. Um, the smallest of all Reformed denominations, the Reformed Baptists, decide mm -hmm. that we need to turn against each other now because we have far too many in our camp. And uh, there's arguments about Thomistic theology. Yeah. I should not care at all about Thomistic theology, right? This is a total nerd fest. Or I should get in on this because this is probably the next Reformation. You should probably do neither. There's a spectrum. Yeah, find you, you should probably do neither. When we, when we talk about Thomistic theology, we're referencing the what the Catholics call the great angelic doctor Thomas Aquinas, who's a philosopher, theologian, and apologist in the late Middle Ages. So the question is, what is Thomistic doctrine? What is Thomistic theology? What was Aquinas ultimately striving to do was to sanctify Aristotelian logic. That's what Aquinas sought to do. What happened in medieval Europe for a long time, they didn't have access to the, a lot of the great Greek thinkers because they didn't have translations or an ability to, to bring them out into the languages, particularly Latin of the late Middle Ages. But out of the Islamic world, which had had Aristotle for centuries... The European world began to discover uh, these ancient philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, but predominantly Aristotle, and someone like Thomas Aquinas, who was a colossal intellect, came along. He began to imbibe the Aristotelian logic. He tried to then take Christian theology, and he believed he could marry the two. And that's really the debate. Honestly, that's what it boils down to. Can we marry Aristotelian logic or natural theology, which means theology that we've learned or concluded or we've kind of, uh, we've worked our way toward using just the principles of logic and the natural world? We didn't need revelation. We didn't need scripture. We had revelation of scripture, but it wasn't essential to understand these specific things about God because we worked our way toward it through syllogisms and, and logic and valid reasoning. And we come up with what we call Thomism, right? Now, Thomas wasn't anti-scripture. He just, that wasn't his burden. He wasn't an exegete. His primary goal was to take Aristotle and sanctify him and utilize and mobilize him for the Christian cause. And that's the debate today. Can we sanctify Greek philosophy? No one's saying that everything Aristotle said was wrong. All truth is God's truth. This is the way the argument kind of flies. Thomas Aquinas was a diehard to his back teeth, Catholic, defending transubstantiation, de defending seven uh, sacraments. He was a Catholic to, to the very fiber of his being. And so that's part of the debate by Reformed Baptists. Why are we even looking at this guy? What do we care about this guy? He was wrong about the gospel. He was wrong about justification. He was wrong about the church. He was wrong about Jesus being the head of the church. He's really not relevant. I would say somewhere in the middle is probably a safe place. You should have some familiarity with who Thomas Aquinas was. You should have some familiarity with what Aristotelian logic is, but we're Bible people. You need to know your Bible. That's where your obligation starts and ends 
is you should and you need to know your Bible. If you find that your favorite preacher or a preacher or teacher that you're listening to is a Thomist or is a fan of Thomas Aquinas, don't get too concerned. You'll find guys like Jonathan Edwards and all guys who love Jonathan Edwards like Jack Gerstner, R.C. Sproul and the like are all big Thomas fans. Not a massive problem. That's probably where it's going to hit the ground for most of us is I hear it mentioned, should I run? Not that dangerous. Just not that dangerous. Learn Bible above all else. Let's wrap up here because you'll be surprised. This isn't, we've just hit an hour, hour and ten. Oh my goodness. I'm not surprised. I know. Wake up. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So we'll have one and a half. Okay. This one is just going to uh, uh, clarify the earlier question about the unforgivable sin. Yeah. Okay. Um, did Jesus endure more condemnation than someone therefore paying for the unforgivable sin? Which I can see the answer in what you've already said, but just in brief. So I I will say that there's actually a sermon on the Hope Reformed Baptist Church YouTube channel on the unforgivable sin. Mark uh, 3. Dating back until... There's two. Yeah. There's two. Um, When is it, Luke 12? Luke 6? It's 2015. I know the year. It was a long time ago. But in the, in the Luke series, which you did back yeah. years ago, back when. you'll f- be able to find one. It'll be called, What is the Unforgivable Sin? Yep. Or the Unforgivable Sin? Yep. And then there was one that I would have done in Mark 3 or yep. 4, whichever that was, uh, just a year ago. Yep. Um, updated, revised, uh, newer, fresher, younger, hot, good look, the whole, the whole uh, and I'm pretty sure we'll give the same answer. Yes, I'm I hope sure so. we would have chatted. Yeah. yeah, we would have. And we did. Um, <coughs> I Those think good. to the essence of the question, I'm not trying to dodge. I, I, whoever asked it really does want an answer. They don't want to get palmed off to go watch a YouTube video, right? Um, what we have to understand is on the cross, Jesus absorbed and consumed the totality of the wrath of God, which takes a finite human of any sinner and eternity to exhaust. So a finite person consuming the infinite wrath of a holy God takes forever to do that. Literally, they never reach the bottom. Jesus is a finite person in his humanity and he's an infinite person in his divinity. And so Jesus as the God being on the cross is the only human that's ever had the capacity to absorb and consume the fullness, the totality of the wrath of God. Now trying to quantify that, I don't think is a necessarily helpful thing to do. I may not be understanding the question very well. Um, But what we do say is that Jesus consumed in totality God's true and just wrath In those few short hours, he absorbed it all. What takes a finite human, no matter how big and bad their sins are, it takes an eternity to absorb that. So we do have to have far more foreboding and scarier thoughts about the wrath that was poured out on Jesus than even the sufferer in hell undergoing the acutest of suffering because there is something elongated about that. Now that is its own torment. The foreverness of hell is its own torment. Don't misunderstand me. But in a sense in which the finite person is absorbing that over the duration of infinite eternity, it's not the same experience as Jesus absorbing it in one moment, one space-time on the cross. Uh, What is the history of... This will be our last one, and this has got the most likes. What is the history of dominion theology? Um, uh, Now, the particular angle they're coming from is, quote-unquote, we have authority to heal and cast out demons idea. Yep. Uh, what is the biblical view on Christian authority? That's such a big question. It is. I've, I, I, I think I took half an hour to answer that one time when one of the guys said, last question, make it quick. 
in what sense, what is the, no, it was dominion mandate, and is that yeah, dominion okay. theology. So, um, uh, it's, it's been around since the earliest Christian experience. We've got the Marcionites in the patristic period of the church. We've got lots of different people in the early churches that bought into this kind of idea that flatters the human self. It shouldn't be surprised to any of us that people buy into theologies that make much of us or impute great amounts of power to us or sovereignty or authority over demons and diseases and all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And in each one of those instances, there's a germ of truth. There's a germ of truth that for a Christian to, to, to be struggling with what they think is a demonic attack, to utilize the name of Jesus is a valid thing to do. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Yeah. Be filled with the Spirit and Satan will flee. Like there's, there's ways in which this spiritual warfare discussion can be undertaken in a healthy way. What the wrong thing to do is to walk you know, through Queen Street Mall thinking you're casting a demon out of every bush and every bench. That's, obviously, that's idiocy. I've seen people do that, literally. Like They thought they were bringing revival because the only thing hindering revival was the demon in every tile in the mall. Like That was what they thought, right? And it's easy to look at that and be like, you're probably mentally unstable. Get back on your meds. Like That's true, probably. But there are people that have bought into this idea that what really is going on are there these strongholds hovering over cities and neighborhoods and, and states and denominations and churches and we just need to find out their name. That's always like the weird key, right? If you knew their name, oh, then you could tell them to be gone. But like demons aren't just like, they're not waiting for someone to know their name. It's the name of Jesus is the only name you need to know. If you find yourself coming up against those kinds of forces and spiritual forces of darkness are real and they are, they are on the offensive, if you find in your life you're coming up against them, the name of Jesus is the name you need to know. It's to lean on Jesus, to pray to God, to call upon him for strength, and to take authority over situations that God would have you to do that. Now, I can't give much more than that without a three-point sermon, um, but I'm sure you can come and ask the elders here and they can give you more counsel. Do you want to add anything? Um, no, the, the general idea of, of do, do we receive, therefore, no authority as Christians in the spiritual realm? No, no you do. Uh, the, the authority is, though, as the letters of Revelation have shown us, and then as we look to the life of people like the Apostle Paul, who is our chief example for living the Christian life, of whom we are given much detail um, and, ex and uh, uh, extrapolation upon how he lived his life, uh, the, the, the authority that we have been given is a lot closer related to the ordinary means of grace and the building of the kingdom through the winning of souls than it is to fighting uh, uh, demons in some kind of uh, uh, spiritual UFC. So yes, Ephesians says, uh, but I thought that we were fighting not against flesh and blood, but against the demon, you know, the spiritual principalities in, of, of darkness. Yeah, yeah. But also their creed is that they are not fighting in the spiritual places alone, but through the fleshly world. So that what Paul is saying, it's, it's not as if he's, he's picturing the, the Ephesians battling demons in a spiritual realm and then go, hey guys, teaching moment, those aren't persons. Those aren't humans. Those are the spiritual realm. And the Ephesians go, oh, is that what we're fighting, this Doctor Strange Marvel type fight? No, they were engaging with human culture, human sin, false teaching, church splits, sin and, and, and uh, damage to the church and the kingdom and distraction to be worldly instead of building the kingdom. And he says of the what seems fleshly is, in fact, spiritual warfare. So um, that's why I say uh, not that we don't actually engage with the spiritual uh, principalities in that way, but that what it actually looks like when we are usually doing it is fighting sin, 
fighting false teaching, bringing brothers and sisters back from wandering, fighting for souls, apologetics, and that's what Paul calls fighting wild beasts in Ephesus, at least uh, symbolically. So um, that's, and, and if you go back and listen to all the, the end of all of our Revelation series uh, uh, letters, that's what you see Jesus saying. I'll give you the authority to sit with me, to rule with me, to break the, the, the nations into, a bot, into like, like, uh, uh, like pots. It's ruling with Christ through the ordinary gospel means of the church's ministry, primarily preaching the gospel and seeing souls saved and fighting anything that gets in the way. Thank you very much for all of your questions and your participation. Uh, no apologies to the vegan questions that kept on popping up. We can address them later. Uh, thank you, Pastor Craig, everybody. Oh, there you go.